back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Sean. How are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problems. My pleasure. And today, um, Kind of, I would like to revisit the uh, the surgery for non-surgeons podcast, and uh, this will not go away, will it? Nope, it will not. So, <laughs> um, so we'll see where it goes, right? I think yeah, no just doubt. Need to get refocused is just my so, opinion. Yeah. So, can I throw a caveat in here? Sure. I am not a surgeon, although I work with some uh, as a consultant now to the joint trauma system, and I used to the medical director for 18 Deltas in three different groups, but uh, I'm an emergency physician. And so I'm sure the answers to a lot of my questions will um, make sense to a lot of people, but it'll probably piss off a lot of people equally. So I'm just going to put that out there for as a caveat. Yeah, that sounds perfect. So, um, and I think because of your experience as a, as a group doc, and you've been in the community for a, for a number of years, so you really get us from an operational standpoint. Um, so you can see like what our capabilities are, and you and uh, kind of the point I'd like to get at, I guess, just starting off is, you know, obviously the the elephant in the room is Europe, right? And if there were to be any kind of action, we're going to need a lot of surgeons and. They don't just pump those out every day. So in order to you know, affect survivability on the battlefield, why can't we just start training uh, you know, 18 deltas, SOIDCs? We already get you know, surgical skills anyway. Um, so we're familiar with that kind of operating environment. Why can't we just beef up their skills and make them actual surgeons? Yeah, you know, my, my tongue-in-cheek answer was you can. They, you know, USUS has a great program where people can, you know, get into medical school and get credit for their, um, you know, for their past experiences. Uh, you know, they can spend the four years in medical school, the five years in general surgery, um, maybe, you know, preferably two years of trauma critical care, and 11 years later, you can make your medics into surgeons, right? And that's using surgeons as a specialty in the military, right? And of course, that's kind of tongue in cheek. But when you deal with medicine and you talk about uh, potentially contentious issues, medicine is stovepipe. So, you know, whether it be uh, for good reason or for proprietary gain, we have so many different specialties that when you bring this issue up to people who are specialists, uh, immediately they're going to tell you the reason why. Uh, you're not like them, but if you want to be like them, then you can go through all the other uh, pain and uh, tears and sweat in years that they put in so that you can hope to be like them someday. And so, you know, that, of course, that's going to be the, uh, the initial response. Um, but I'm going to take a step back to your question because there's a lot going on in that question, right? So right. first and foremost, you say we don't have enough surgeons. Who's telling you don't have enough surgeons and why is that? Um, well, let's see. Uh, Stacy told me. Uh, um, <laughs> okay, that's number one. Um, but 
and Jen probably told you too. Yep, of course. So yeah. So, but here's the deal, right? Why? Because what we're doing is we're grading ourselves on the last conflict, right. the last contact where we had the greatest survivability ever in the history of warfare with a deployed medical system that was probably better than if you were in a car accident uh, in rural Midwest United States. You know, I mean, this was a highly functioning system, which is interesting after eight or 10 years of conflict, right? So that system was not there the first couple of years. But we are grading ourselves against the last conflict. We are grading ourselves against that expectation. And the funny thing on the medical side is we just assume that's the way it's always been. The people who don't grade us by that system necessarily are going to be the line commanders, the people that are getting paid to accept risk. And so I think an assumption of a lot of medical people is that we have to have absolutely that same highly functioning system from the minute we go into the next conflict. I think our commanders understand and are willing to accept way more risk. And when I was briefing my commanders uh, before, you know, bullet point number one is people are going to die. And what I meant by that was people who we were saving previously, the triple amputees with, you know, 40% body surface area burns and traumatic brain injury that we end up living those people are going to die. And some of the commanders looked at me and said, well, of course they are, Doc. This is a different conflict. But I don't think we in medicine have wrapped our brain around it as well as the people that are there to accept risk. And in fact, that is a very dangerous concept that then leads to other things like moral injury and stuff like that. Because you set an unreasonably high expectation, especially when you're going into an area that you know is going to be austere, and so I go back to who tells you you need that many surgeons? If we're grading ourselves based on the last, con um, you know, on, on the last conflict, then yeah, we will set ourselves up for failure. Right. But that doesn't help the medic whose buddy has been injured, who he can't get out of there, right? Because he's still looking at him, his teammates are looking at him and say, "Do your thing." So I I understand at a personal level that it doesn't really matter what the statistics say. But in the grand scheme of things, it's going to be a very different conflict if we go into some of these large-scale combat operations. Yeah, and I mean, and I guess my counterpoint to your, your your argument is that we're using the wrong grading criteria. I mean, what would be the the correct grading criteria? You know, Korea, you know, World War II. Right. No, and, and so it, it depends, right? And and it's. When you look at when you look at history, I think there are a lot of valuable lessons that we can get. But absolutely, we are far ahead of where we were in those other conflicts. So we know tactical combat casualty care saves lives. We know early damage control resuscitation saves lives, and we know that damage control surgery and perioperative critical care saves lives. And so, because we know that, and because we are able to train and we have the luxury of training time and funding, then, you know, you could absolutely come back with, okay, that was then, but this is now, and there's a lot out there, right? And right. so you ask yourself, why can't I train in surgery? Well, it's not just surgery, right? It is the team that comes with the surgical capability. It's the years of experience from multiple specialists on that team to help manage that patient. And so I can train, I'll say we can train anyone to do anything. I mean, we could absolutely train 
to do the procedures of surgery. Uh But to maintain those procedures, not to mention the time that it would take to get the initial training, but the maintenance of that, and most importantly, when to do it and when not to do it, and then understanding the management afterwards. And I'll just use, you know, my airway example. When people, you know, in the, in the emergency department, somebody comes in, we have a very low threshold for intubating a patient because we know that we can hand that patient off. We, you know, we, we make the decision, we intubate a patient, and then we call in the respiratory therapist. And then we call up our, our compatriots, uh, you know, in the, on the trauma side of the house or in the intensive care unit. And we just ship that person out. You know what? We made the decision that dispo is there, that patient's out of there. But what I tell when I'm instructing medics, I say, when you intubate somebody, that's not the end of your problems. That's the beginning of your problems. Because now you've bought that patient um, as far as active management for the rest of that patient's management. And we have to look at any procedure as being that way. And, you know, regardless of whether you are technically proficient at doing whatever procedure it is, are you ready to manage that and then manage the consequent, um, you know, uh, post-procedure course of that patient? And so there is a lot more to this than being able to, for instance, identify a bleeder and being able to tie that off. Right. No, absolutely right. And I mean, from that, uh, the last podcast, um, you know, the the thing that came out probably the most talked about was triage and just how do you triage properly somebody who's going to actually need surgery and that's Absolutely. something that we're going to have to get really good at because at the schoolhouse um i would say 98 percent of all the the training scenarios they're all urgent surgical of course yeah right? and right you know it, it's yeah. like a muscle memory to say this is where he's going you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you, you can't put too much back pain and skin rashes in. I mean, because that's just a waste of training time. But, right. you know, when I when I teach prolonged field care, I'm like, hey, we are dealing with that 10 to 20 percent of serious and critical casualties that we think that we can make a difference. You know, we're not dealing with the 65 to 70% of people that will live despite your best efforts, you know, like that are stable, that have all that. So when you see this, there's absolutely almost this training scar that you expect when you see a patient, you're going to, you know, you're going to have to go full court press on that person. Um, but again, it's usually uh, many times, I won't say usually many times it's in a vacuum. It's like, Hey, we are going to put, a bunch of catastrophic things on this one patient and you need to go, you know, the the intent here is for you to act um, and to, and to do things. But I think we don't have that, the benefit of seeing all the other patients where the decision is not clear cut. Uh, And, and that decision, and I will say the standard of care absolutely shifts based on, um, you know, the logistics available. I mean, that is a difficult, difficult way of, uh, you know, getting after this. Um, and, and, you know, this, this, this reminds me, as I talked about before, so, so recently at the joint trauma system, you know, there, there's been this push for the austere, uh, resuscitative surgical teams, uh, you know, each service has a different name. There's an alphabet soup of different capabilities, but because we were going to a lighter surgical footprint to provide surgical support, the committee, um, 
on surgical combat casualty care basically wrote a position statement on single surgeon teams. And this is single surgeon teams. So it's a team of people that only has one board certified surgeon. And they still caveated that situation um, very heavily. Okay, so this is not non-surgeon student surgery. This is a single surgeon team. And, you know, one of the facts and principles, you know, number eight right off this says, the decision on whether or not to perform damage control surgery in austere conditions, in parentheses, with limited resources, requires significant experience in managing complex trauma patients. And I would, I would challenge anybody with that as a fact and principle of this, a single surgeon team. The, even the, 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 Center of Excellence for Trauma for the Department of Defense, you know, that writes the CPG, some would argue to say sets a standard for military surgery in the world, is saying you have to have significant experience before you even think you can make the decision on whether or not to cut. And, you know, and that's, this is a very conservative paper, and they only put a few things out there, but it recognizes the fact that when you put less, um, assets, less, um, you know, people out into the field, they have to be that much more experienced. Um, and so I think when you, when you look at that and put that in that kind of context, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's, it's a tough situation and I'm not minimizing it. I understand when, when that patient's in front of you and it's your buddy, it's, it's a tough decision, right? But, right. you know, at some point we just got to say, where's that at? And so, Getting back to the training side. So we look at the training side. Okay, let's say that you are going to train to proficiency in whatever that was. You're saying, I'm going to spend the next 15 months of my medical practice, hell, my military practice. I'm not going to do anything operational. I am just going to get really, really, really good at this particular procedure. What are you not doing? You know, because I would love to see, uh, you know, how good are you at getting vascular access? How good are you at initiating walking blood bank? How good are you at tactical combat casualty care? You know, I mean, now that you have a new sexy skill, of course, you know, you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So the answer may be, well, let's cut the person open. We're just going to tie off the aorta, you know, what, whatever, excuse yeah. me, clamp the aorta. But, you know, a, a bottom line is what are you not training in? And I think you and I both know that when we put ex what I would consider experienced medics through some, um, I'm just going to say the average, we'll just say a prolonged field care scenario, there's a lot to be left, uh, you know, to be said about basic TC3 and damage control resuscitation skills. And I think having been a medical director before, and again, uh, you know, I, I had two back-to-back -back deployments of Special Forces Battalion. I knew my guys pretty well. And I knew who it was that I would trust to take care of my family. And I know who it was that uh, if my dog got hit, I would not take them to, right? So there, I was, I gave a lot of latitude to, to those people who had a healthy respect for stuff. I would have a hard time saying that the average guy with his average operational cycle could maintain any level of surgical proficiency in the job as an operational team medic. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, every every class, you know, start, starting anew, um, we have to run through just basic T-Tri-C type assessments just to knock the rust off. There's, there's, some, yeah. there's some guys that like, they're just out of practice. Obviously they're not dumb, they're I, just out of practice. Not at all. 
outstanding, probably smarter than me and a lot of my colleagues, right? It's just the situation that you're put into to maintain the level of proficiency. Now, again, we're talking about, because you asked me the question, why can't I make them a surgeon, right? I'm not talking about them being bad medics or anything. You just said, why couldn't I make them a surgeon? Well, I need to maintain them as a medic, be, you know, and, and ensure that they can do that. And, and again, tactical combat casualty care saves lives because simple things that can absolutely save lives. And that is, you know, that everything else is icing on the cake. If you can stop bleeding now, of course, stopping bleeding in the box. Yes, we're talking about that, but that is something that the reason why it's such a hot topic is because we're not good at it and we don't have a good pre-hospital means. And some of those people absolutely have to get to a surgeon. And unfortunately, as we kind of started with in the next conflict, we're not going to, we may not have enough surgeons based on our risk tolerance and you know what the layout of the battlefield is going to be. So um, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's hard. And we put, we put our uh, our medics in some impossible positions. I mean, that's how we started the whole prolonged field care thing. Um, you know, is is to try to provide some kind of guidance and oversight. That's the reason we have this podcast, right? Is to try to get the best information out to people. Um, so, anyways, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head as far as number of patients that rolled into a you know, roll three or, you know, Bagram or Cap or any of the others um, that needed, actually needed surgery versus the number that actually did not. Um, yeah. But um, just talking with uh, Stacy and Andy, um, the numbers were pretty small. And that needed to be cut upon the minute they arrived, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually looked at, I don't know if the paper came out, but at the joint trauma system, we actually looked at this and, you know, and it, and uh, at the risk of opening up, a, you know, a can of worms here, um, you know, we looked at basically was the golden hour a thing. Um, well, it turns out that time does matter. And it turns out those people that made it to a facility capable of surgery within one hour did better than those people that didn't. But to your point, most of them did not go directly under the knife. Many of those people were managed by that team of specialists there. Damage control resuscitation was either initiated or continued because if it started in the field, we know that people did better. Uh, they might have received that expert look and decided not to be caught upon, but they had some kind of diagnostic imaging or they had... Um, adjunctive resuscitation measures, or they had the ability to manage an airway a little bit better to oxygenate and ventilate somebody, which a lot of those things I just mentioned are absolutely capabilities of prolonged field care. So I would say if we're able to do some of those things, like resuscitate well, like be able to oxygenate and ventilate our patients, like be able to give early antibiotics, we'll say to, you know, potentially septic patients or ensure um, you know, perfusion of the kidneys and critical organs because we are resuscitating appropriately and early, we may be able to extend some of those things that when we were collecting the data, they only got once they got to the surgical facility. But it wasn't that there was a magical, you know, knife cutting open the skin within 60 minutes that necessarily saved their lives. Yes, absolutely. A minority of those patients did benefit from getting in there and getting cut open. But we think it is the many different capabilities that were at that facility 
And when they got there quickly, that absolutely benefited them. And this whole thing about prolonged field care is figuring out which capabilities can we bring forward. If we can't bring the patient back, what capabilities can we bring forward to the patient to, to initiate best practice in a timely manner? And when we were talking about things like decision-making, any kind of decision-making, we talk about things like telemedicine or teleconsultation where you call up somebody, you know, you invite a specialist into the care of your patient to help you with some of those decisions if you are out there alone and unafraid and unable to move your patient. And so, of course, it's not as good as getting a patient to a surgical team with all that entails, but there are some principles that you can train on simple principles that we believe will absolutely make a difference in, if not completely, certainly reducing the mortality and morbidity of your patient there, um, you know, as, as a follow-on to tactical combat casualty care. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. Hey, so anyways, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, like Doug says, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. And I think, you know, once we start start boiling down numbers and you look at, okay, you know, 10% of these people, you know, of the potentially survivable deaths, which were pretty low to begin with, could have been, could have been maybe, or at least potentially saved by early surgery, right? And when you start nailing down, you know, singletons or tens of people and trying to adapt an entire medical system around that, you start to slack or lose your focus on the things that got you to save all the other people. Right, exactly. Because, you know, there, there's a finite amount of resources to include time for training, uh, medical training. There's, it's all finite. And so when you choose to spend your limited uh, time and money on one thing, what are you not doing, you know, on the other side? Um, but fortunately, unfortunately, we have highly skilled people that can re get trained and critically think and and do some phenomenal medical care, but that's obviously not their only job. Uh, and so we have got to look at those things that are going to be high yield, those things that will make a difference. And then it's on us to build a system to hopefully support them through you know any number of things. But the, at the end of the day, as uh, and these these guys, we're expecting them to do an incredibly tough job. I wanted to go back to, so, so again, when we were talking about surgery just now, we were talking about damage control surgery. We were talking about essentially when somebody's bleeding on the inside, cutting them open, identifying the bleeder and stopping that bleeding, which is damage control surgery. It's not definitive surgery. Absolutely. The next expectation is you're going to move that patient out. You go, you're going to be able to resuscitate them with warm, fresh old blood. If you have it, that you have the system in place so that damage control surgery is a temporizing measure. Yet we have been teaching surgery to medics for decades, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily highly technical and expedient damage control surgery techniques, right? It has been uh, wound care techniques. It's been uh, completion of amputations. It has been, um, you know, incision and drainages and, and, and debridements. Uh, it has been fasciotomies in some cases. It has been those things that absolutely, I think, make a difference and are safely reproducible with 
what many surgeons might consider maybe limited training time, right? They may be more considered uh, less urgent procedures and more definitive procedures. But I believe this all came from the experiences, you know, when we're talking about unconventional warfare, when we're talking about working with, uh, you know, host nation um, folks and, and, you know, setting up the old quote, G hospitals back when, um, and when you go back and you read about, you know, the partisans in World War II, that that's kind of what a lot of these guys were doing. Um, and, and it's, it's different. It, it's surgery, but it's not like highly technical damage control surgery. And I don't mean technical, like, like it takes a lot of technique, but it's, it's kind of a high risk resuscitative procedure. So the surgery and the surgical care that the, that guys have traditionally been trained in a schoolhouse, I think is absolutely applicable and it will become more applicable if we find ourselves in these austere environments. And so I think medical specialties could learn a lot from what we are teaching and what special operations medics are able to, you know, reproduce as far as definitive wound care, as far as, um, you know, like I said, completion of amputations and, and dealing with necrotic tissue, debriding, that type of stuff. I, I think that's absolutely appropriate. But when we say surgery with some of the previous conversations, I think those those things get conflated between the two. And then they think, oh, surgery is an all or none thing. But, you know, even with our surgical teams, where we pulled out a lot of orthopedic surgeons and other folks, we may need to look at the composition of our surgical teams. Like these small light surgical teams that by definition are temporizing. They don't have patient holding capacity. They have limited logistics. When we're talking about going into a contested area and not being able to move patients, we may have to completely change the configuration of our deployable surgical facilities, um, as well as what our special operations, you know, medics are going to have to deal with. So surgery as a whole and what that requirement may look very different than it did, you know, in previous conflicts. Um, and, and to that, I think we can look back to the special operations schoolhouse and how they uh, train their medics and continue to train their medics in very appropriate surgical interventions. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you've read those books uh, about, you know, the World War II as a partisans in uh, yeah. Czechoslovakia, um, so far, at least the, the two that I've read about it, none of the surgeons actually attribute their surgical skill to the number of patients they were actually able to save. Um, usually it's their ability to do nursing care. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, it, it, it has to do with everything that goes around the surgery, right? To recover the patient, to return them to duty, to, you know, their, their biggest, you know, a lot of times their, their biggest logistical challenges were just having antibiotics because they were holding these patients for days and days and in some cases recovering them or, you know, going around and checking on them, um, you know, doing the kind of this distributed rounds because they didn't actually have a true hospital. They would right. just... You know, recover them from surgery and then say, okay, take them to your basement and, you know, we'll come check on them in a couple of days. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a different mindset as far as, you know, that the type of service that's required, you know, and unfortunately, uh, you know, those people that we were saving, uh, they're probably going to self triage, you know, I mean, that that's one of the skills in, you know, unconventional warfare is caching dead bodies. Like, how do you do that? Right? right. Not really something we thought much about before, but that's stuff that we need to think about. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of a, uh, expectation and a different skill set that may be required. 
So it, it may be like comparing apples and oranges when we're talking about medics doing quote unquote surgery. Right. So is the JTS looking at, you know, these lessons learned from back when and reapplying them, you know, with our current technologies and how to kind of do that better? Um, well, I don't want to speak for all of my colleagues. Sure. Um, I think we're, we're still trying to figure out how to provide damage control surgery, but a lot of people are coming to the realization that um, we need to be collecting lessons learned as we can from current conflicts. And I, I think, um, you know, you're going to focus on your specialty area and your specialty area is going to be, you know, what can you improve upon it and where are the gaps as, you know, as they should be. Right. Um, I think the services themselves, you know, the army's bringing back general hospitals and field hospitals and these, these really large, uh, holding, um, facilities. Right. And, and so they're, they're reorganizing based on large numbers of casualties. And, and I think that we, uh, you know, I, I think that that may be a way to think about this, um, but we are still, because we still have, um, you know, troops deployed at least two COCOMs, mm -hmm. right? And and we still have small teams and we still have a requirement for small surgical teams. And so we are still dealing with, you know, how small can you make a team to support, uh, you know, a relatively small footprint on the ground. And so, so that's where, some of our uh, our thought is going, um, you know, en route care and getting uh, more robust with that, um, and being prepared for longer transports. And then um, I don't think anybody is. Well, I'm not saying anybody, but but we're not really talking about how is it that we provide more beds and more nursing care. Um, but I think that the services are definitely looking at that. Good, good. Um, so we kind of passion on uh damage control surgery you know in a ditch um which i think is probably a smart idea but what can i do right so i would consider myself at least a competent medic um almost um what should i be focusing on doing so that should i have to go somewhere um that i can provide the best medicine in a really bad place yeah um i think there's a realization of what you can and you can't do so one of the major research gaps or research areas is still hemorrhage control you know they talk about the the rescue foam you know that you inject inside bellies and um you know of course one of my i say it's tongue-in-cheek you know favorite things like roboa and where can we do that intimate roboa and things like that i think we are still trying to um find a way to stop non-compressible hemorrhage. And I, right now in the science, there's very small inroads into that type of stuff, but I think we all know that there are, you know, some significant gaps that have yet to be addressed, right? And it's, it's a tough situation. It's a tough situation, you know, for surgical teams sometimes when you get these catastrophically injured people and we, we have these high expectations. So what can you do? You can do tactical combat casualty care really well. You can do damage control resuscitation. So uh, fresh old blood or cold stored whole blood uh, in conjunction with adjuncts, TXA, calcium, uh, you know, and, and 
and that type of stuff and doing that in a timely manner. So we know that threshold blood within or blood products within 36 minutes of time of injury absolutely saves lives. And when you get beyond that, you know, not that you magically cross the 37 minutes, but if you delay blood transfusion, uh, the mortality benefit goes, goes down significantly. Um, you can uh, learn to triage. Uh, you can learn to enlist the help of decision makers if you have communications, right? If you're able, we're talking about if you get into prolonged field care, being able to communicate with other folks um, and, and really just learn the principles of resuscitation well. I think you can do a lot of good for for a lot, the majority of patients and, and those people that it will make a difference. Um, we've got to be able to give better triage, when we're talking about triage, really distinguishing those people who um, will benefit from your interventions versus those that have a poor outcome, right? So you you can imagine if somebody is shot in the head and their brains are kind of outside of their skull, that doesn't portend to a good outcome. And I think we all kind of know that because we say it's kind of obvious, you know, the brain's outside the, the skull, that's, that's the wrong side of the bone there. Um, that person's probably going to die. Even if that person has agonal respirations and a heartbeat, you know, for four hours, it's pretty easy for us to say, eh, that person's not going to do well. It's a lot harder for us to say that person has a small hole in their belly. They're not looking good, but they're still conscious. Like, what do I do with that? Right. Um, and that's an incredibly difficult thing. So if we can provide some kind of guidance and then we can provide some reassurance to say, yeah, we've got science behind this that says, you made the right decision when you um, didn't expend all of your limited resources on this patient, because we know in those type of patients, they just don't do well. When I was a medical, you know, medical um, battalion surgeon, medical director in Afghanistan, you know, I, I told my guys to withdraw care a couple of times and they were usually on bad head injuries. Uh, unfortunately, they were on kids a couple of times. And these guys were going full court press with all their stuff. Uh, one, one, little girl that they had been managing for a day and a half. And they called me up because they were running out of their oxygen supply. And then when I started to peel back the onion on, I was like, oh man, like, I'm sorry. I wish you guys even called me a little bit earlier. Cause I said that, you know, her with the GCS of four or five in rural Afghanistan, you know, her, her, <laughs> her prognosis is horrendous. Right. But to be able to, to be able to explain that to guys and, and kind of relieve them of, of that decision, or at least provide guidance ahead of time. Like we knew that people with more than 70% body surface area burns, they were not going to do well in Afghanistan either. Right. And we were able to put that out in guidelines ahead of time. Well, I think we need to put out clear guidelines to say, Hey, these type of patients in this environment, their, their mortality is incredibly high, but, but what we do by providing that kind of guidance ahead of time, we help with the triage decision. Um, and we kind of have this idea right now that we can do everything. You know, the expectation is there. We've had all this training. Uh, you know, we were in the best deployed medical system in the world. And look at all this great, you know, where we've been in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, and all this data. But again, it goes back to that initial risk acceptance and understanding that the next conflict may be very different. And just trying to wrap our brain around that. Because if we go into that with the same expectations, if they, if you do training and every time you train, you're saving that guy's life, right? Or that patient's life. You saved him every time because you did the following 10 steps correctly. And then the first time you see a patient and then they die, you know, they, there's kind of, there's immediate realization, the medic, they're like, 
oh my God, what did I do wrong? Well, maybe you didn't do anything wrong. You know, I, th- I think if we can define who those patients are that are not going to do well in those situations, that would be tremendously helpful. Yeah. You know, who do you not intubate? Who do you not to give the blood to? Who do you who do you not do this? And, and, and saying that that's reasonable. So, you know, that I think that's the kind of stuff that that we as you know the big we um, need to define. Yeah, no, I think you're 100 percent correct because there's definitely been times. Me personally, I've been in situations that it's really a no-win situation, but you're still holding on anyway, um, just because right. that's what you do, right? Yeah, right. No, totally. Um, but but if you get into that situation where you have to make decisions, you know, um, yeah, I, I think we, we owe the best guidance that we can give to, to those folks that do that. And, and we're not just talking about medics. We're talking about any medical care providers. Yep. So Absolutely. Yep. Um, is there anything else you'd like to put out as far as, um, you know, the, the idea of, you know, giving surgery to non-surgeons, medics specifically? Yeah, so we've, um, you know, we, we've actually recently had a discussion with the, with the, the group of us at the Joint Trauma System, and we're looking at, um, you know, if we can put out any official guidance to those people who may be looking at, you know, um, incorporating this into their programs. Um, I would encourage um, anyone that's considering this to reach out to the uh, the Committee on Surgical Combat Casualty Care. Um, we take, uh, the Joint Trauma Systems takes its responsibilities very seriously about being kind of the uh, the cornerstone of, of the Defense Center of Excellence for Trauma. And, and it's, it's our job and our duty to weigh in on some of this stuff, right? So I, I think that it's, and, and some of our colleagues, I know Paul is is part of the committee, right? And and some of our colleagues have um, actually sit on these committees, and they are, as I call it, kind of the operational conscience of a lot of the good idea fairies, right? Um, and, and and these committees, what's really cool about them is uh, it's not a rank structured thing. It's very much close the doors and let's hash this thing out because um, because we realize these are real issues out there. So there are a lot of people who actually give a shit as far as what happens out there and, and how we can help them better. So, uh, you know, I'll just put in a plug for that. So if you know folks that are, that are part of, you know, the joint trauma system, for instance, and there are a lot of other, you know, great organizations out there, but our job is really to try to help inform the standard, uh, you know, across the services and SOCOM as to, as to how we can, uh, you know, hopefully bring a little bit of science and, and experience to some of these issues. Yep. And again, Hey, uh, and I'll say it, I'll say it. I, I'm sure I said something that offended everyone equally on this one. I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for the department of defense. I'm not talking to the joint drama system or anything like that. I'm just one old retired dude who kind of sort of had a little bit of experience back when. So, um, yeah. So, so I'll just put that plug in there. Cause I, you know, I'm sure somebody's going to take this out of context and say that that guy said this and whatever. That's all right. But, Those people can suck. Yeah, that's all right. So <laughs> that's right. We got the microphones. <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, well, cool, Sean. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, man. No, this is good. I, I think uh, you know. I, whenever I hear this, I, I kind of I, I have a yeah, but you know, you hear somebody say something, you're like yeah, but yeah, but this and that and. Uh, we can go around and around. You know, I'll support anybody that can bring a little bit of science evidence and, and prove that they're able to do this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I go back to PFC tr- truth number one, which is if you think you need a surgeon or an intensivist in the field, put one there. 
because don't expect a bunch of guys and don't put it on the guys to be everything to everybody. We've got to understand the risk that's out there and the job of medical officers and, and supervisors and medical directors is to um, is to accurately describe that risk, but then also back up their guys when they're out in these tough situations. Absolutely. Well, well thank you. Yeah, man. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.